0: Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire, and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions, and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and welcome to Master Leadership, where we connect with leaders worldwide to gain insights on important topics to help us on our journey towards greater significance. If you would like to participate as a guest, or if you have a question that you would like to ask a guest, go to masterleadership.org for more information. Antonio Garrido is the author of My Daily Leadership, a powerful roadmap for leadership success. He's also the founder and president of My Daily Leadership, a leadership development organization with a mission to inspire one million of the world's best leaders to reach their full potential. He is an expert in leadership transformation, shaping high-performance leaders out of highly stressed and overworked leaders. Antonio blends his own vast commercial experience with proven techniques to embed a unique brand of leadership development. He is a serial entrepreneur, successful business coach, charismatic speaker, and leader. Welcome, Antonio Garrido. How are you? I'm
1: terribly well, thank you, Liliana. How are you? Thank you for the invitation. I love your podcast, so I'm very honored to have been asked to come and say a few words to your listeners.
0: We are super excited and terribly happy to have you on the podcast. Are you ready to pour into our listeners?
1: Well, I shall endeavor to give it a go. I shall do my very best. Let's see what happens.
0: All right. So tell us about your path to leadership and what you're doing now.
1: Well, I have been terribly fortunate. (laughs) When I first came out of university a million years ago, because I am quite ancient, I was originally an architect. And much more by luck than judgment, I found myself working for some rather large companies and genuinely stumbled into some leadership positions and then continued to progress. I then did a secondary MBA in strategic business management, but that notwithstanding, I kept moving up and up and up, kind of that leadership food chain until the end, before I left and started my own businesses, I was running for what you would term Fortune 60 companies with Billions of revenue and thousands of people. And I was incredibly lucky. But more lucky, I think I was fortunate enough to work for some tremendously enlightened and forward thinking and progressive leaders who really taught me invaluable lessons. And in my first significant job, I got my first real, genuine leadership lesson. Shall I share with you what that was? Because I think Absolutely.
0: It- we, we love leadership lessons. Come on.
1: So here's what happened. As I mentioned, I am ancient. <laughs> I don't want to quite say I would...
0: Wait, hold away. on, because if you're my age, I take offense. <laughs>
1: well, I, I I'm much older than you are. I feel that I look like I'm much older than you are at any rate. So more because of politics than anything else, they decided to promote me into what you would call a CEO role or managing director role, because it was in the UK. And the group chairman left a note on my desk. This is pre-email, right? Handled a note on my desk that asked me to go and see him in his office. So it was day one or perhaps day two. And I went to his office. This guy was a natural born genius, right? And I sat down and he asked me, And your listeners should do this exercise, right? It's an enormously powerful exercise. So he asked me, had I ever worked for a terrible boss, right? (laughs) Had I ever worked for a, a dreadful leader? And I think that most people at some point in their life can probably recognize that they probably have. So anyway, I said, yeah, of course, I've worked for some stinkers. So he gave me a piece of paper from his printer and he passed me a pen and he said, could I write down the characteristics of a terrible boss, a terrible leader, a terrible manager? And it was an odd thing to ask me to do, but of course I did. And I wrote down, I don't know, six or seven things. And you can imagine potentially what those things might be. You might say a micromanager. You might say somebody that's inconsistent. You might say someone that plays favorites. You might say somebody that has a bad temper, whatever. Everyone will have their own list of leadership dreadfulness. So, I wrote down five or six things and slid the piece of paper back over the desk to him. And he looked at it and he agreed. And he said, Yep, that's exactly what a terrible leader looks like. Write down some more. (laughs) So, I picked up the pen again and wrote down another four or five things and then slid it back. He said, Just a couple more. So, then I wrote a couple more. And now I have a list of about top 10 most dreadful attributes (laughs) of a terrible leader, right? So I had this list and he was looking at this list and he agreed with the list entirely. And he said, so anyway, he said, that's a really, really good list. Would you do me an enormous favor? I said, yes, of course, name it, You know, whatever I can do. He said, whilst ever you are running the place around here, I said, can you promise to never ever do anything that's on that list, right? So I said, yeah, I'll try. And he said, then can you always have that list with you? And if ever I see you in the corridor, Let's stop and talk about the list. I said, okay. So I carried that list in my pocket for years and years and years. Anyway, here's the interesting thing. About two months in, the organization, a couple of months before I was promoted, so I was zero responsibility for any of this, the company did an employee engagement 360 survey just to kind of see what all the employees were feeling about the business and the leadership and all of that kind of stuff. Anyway, it turns out that they didn't like us very much, they didn't trust us very much. And there were kind of reasons for that. And I understood it. And the report came out, and I think we spent about a quarter of a million pounds on it, which these days would be probably a couple of million dollars. The report looked like the New York Yellow Pages, if there is such a thing, right? So it was like this really okay, thick thing.
0: Because we're ancient.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. See, it's all tying up. So <laughs> even the executive summary was like, it would have broken your toe if you dropped it on your foot. So we were in a board meeting, and this report had just come out and he came into the room and he sat you know, at the table and he said, has everybody read the report? Right. And there were lots of people kind of looking slightly askance and shuffling their feet a little. And he said, Do you know what the problem is? We've all been doing the stuff in our list. Get your lists out. And the whole of the director's team all got their list out, the list that they had all made with him. And it was their own personal list. And he said, we've been doing this stuff. So let's fix it. And then we got into the fixing of it. And I thought to myself, what a great lesson, a good life lesson, perhaps, but certainly a great leadership lesson. And there is as much value, I think, sometimes in deciding the leader that you don't want to be versus the leader that perhaps that you know that you ought to be. So I think that was my first leadership lesson. And we talk about quite a few of them in the book, mydailyleadership.com. We talk about lots of those kind of lessons from probably the wisest and best and biggest and most recognized leaders that I've worked for over my years, because I'm ancient. So that got me into leadership. I recognized that if I needed to be, I wanted to be a half-decent leader, then I ought to learn something about it so that I made it my life's work, I think, to learn what leadership is all about, how to be a good leader, how to avoid being a bad leader. And then probably the last 10 or 12 years, I've helped other leaders do the same.
0: I am stuck on that exercise. Thank you for sharing that experience. And that is a beautiful exercise that I'm going to steal from you, actually.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Uh I wish I could claim credit for it. It It happened to me. And now I've since asked countless leaders to do a similar thing. I remember just before covid I caught COVID at the Super Bowl final in Miami just when the world was catching COVID. So that was at the end of February, early March. Nobody knew how to deal with COVID. I was an early adopter, right? I caught COVID like very, very early. Then my wife caught it and everybody else caught it. But just before COVID, I was giving a talk to maybe four or 500 leaders. So the question I asked them was, by a show of hands, who here thinks that they do not have any leadership blind spots? Right. So who oh, does not?
0: Oh, loaded answer? question. Yes. Love very it. Low.
1: Now, thankfully, because very often, one of the things that I discover when I'm coaching and leading and training leaders, they don't always have such a high degree of self awareness. But fortunately, this particular bunch of individuals recognize that they must have had some blind spots because nobody put their hand up. I'm sure that a few of them were tempted to, but they kind of looked around and thought, well, no one else is putting <laughs> their hand no.
0: up. So, I won't
1: either, right? So, I said, okay, terrific. So, everybody here recognizes, of course, that they must have some leadership blind spots, and everybody's nodding sagely, right? And I said, okay, terrific. So, if you could all just write down what your blind spots are, that would be great. (laughs) Of course, now everybody's thinking, oh, well, (laughs) I don't know what they are. Right. And that's the trick you see. You know, everybody recognizes that they must have some blind spots, but you ask people what they are. And of course, they don't know what they are, but everybody has them. Now, here's the thing that I learned from another leader. So the question came to me something like, what's the most important attribute for a leader to possess? Some version of that. I kind of went through the usual emotional intelligence things like, you know, like self awareness or empathy or self-control or social skill or the usual kind of list and no try again maybe it's this no try again maybe it's that no try again and I was not getting there so my boss said to me well what's the most important thing for a leader to get to and I'm like collaborative teams and he's going no and I'm thinking crikey I'm really struggling now <laughs> um and I did the usual you know like people are our best assets no cash no money no time no so okay I give up the most important thing for a leader is to get to the truth. Mm. The problem is, it's another question I ask my leaders, and I'll come back to the blind spots thing in a second. What percentage of the time do your people tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Mm. And it's not 100%, right? Because it's hard to tell someone they have an ugly baby, right? So let's imagine that they're telling you 80% of the truth, What they're actually telling you is a version of the truth that they think it's in their best interest to have you believe. Because here's what never happens, Lillian, never happens where someone will go, that was me knocking on the door. Hey, boss, have you got five minutes? And they go, yeah, come in, sit down, open door, you, you know me. Right. Well, I just wanted to let you know that I've been watching you over the last six months and your performance. And I just think, boss, I think you're doing a terrible job. Right. <laughs> Nobody ever says that. Right nobody ever does so nobody ever tells the leader so then how would we discover our blind spots if nobody ever gives us that kind of feedback or that kind of critique and they don't tell us the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth i remember george bush senior when he was no longer president even though you chaps still call the next president mr president anyway so he just walked off the 18th green of a pro-am golf tournament and somebody shook the camera in his face and said, hey, Mr. President, how was the golf today? And this was kind of a moment of perspicacity that I've never seen before from Mr. Bush. He thought for a second and he said, well, it's amazing how many games of golf I've lost since leaving the White House. Because whilst ever he was the president, every bugger let him win, right? Because yeah. he was the president. So, yeah, because otherwise it would have been probably reflected in their next salary review or something. So <laughs> it didn't need it, OK? So... Who has no leadership blind spots? Thankfully, nobody put their hand up. I said, okay, write them down. Nobody knows what they are. So no one tells you the truth. So the other lesson I learned from this particular leader was one of your most important jobs is to develop self-awareness. And that's not an easy thing to do. So part of our program, all of the stuff that we talk about in the book and on our program and with our leaders and so on is the development of self-awareness. That's another thing I think I learned way back when.
0: Well, great nuggets. So tell us about your book and where we can get a copy because I'm sure people are leaning <laughs> in and saying, if these are just two of the top things, <laughs> life, oh my goodness, this is gold. Well,
1: well this is my third book. So I've written two other pretty successful books. This one came out in the beginning of this year. Fortunately enough, that's already been listed in the top 15 leadership books of the year, which is really nice. But it's called My Daily Leadership, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, whatever. And it's available in every format. So paper, electronic, audio. If you do get the audio, this is the first one that I personally narrated because I just thought the two individuals that narrated my first two books were just too dreadful for words. So I narrated this one. So if you want to hear me, all the jokes sound better, I think, in an English accent. So um, <laughs> if you like listening to books, then certainly get that. But also read all about it on the website, which is also all the W's, mydailyleadership.com. And if you want to email me and chat to me about it or anything, it's just antonio at mydailyleadership.com. And whatever you do, even if you don't read it just give me a five star review on amazon that would be terrible.
0: i love this and i love the fact that you're narrating your own book because i tend to think that when the author reads it there's just a different level it's just a heart communication so true so, so
1: true and i have a very particular writing style with lots of sort of humorous footnotes and so on so
0: well we're glad you did that so you talk about action bias in your book. Yeah. Why do you think it's a leader's single most valuable resource?
1: Because I think there is nothing as over-emphasized and praised as planning, nor as underemphasized as doing. A lot yeah. of leaders kind of pride themselves on their ability to think strategically and plan strategically and organize and put processes in place. And you know, I could ask 20 different people, hey. I'm going to a wedding in six months' time and I want to lose 20 pounds. What should I do? And 20 different people will give you 20 different plans and processes and systems by which you could potentially lose 20 pounds. Terrific. Here's the thing, though. Unless you actually do something, right? Unless you actually try and implement a plan, nothing happens. And so what lots of leaders do is they spend way too long planning and not enough time actually doing it and largely at its root it's an ego-based play because what they don't want to do is to make a mistake so they kind of like want the plan to be perfect before they begin yeah and i'm just very much more hey listen make an imperfect start and course correct along the way and so lots of leaders trying to generate the perfect plan don't do anything and the way i characterize that is hey look it's not ready, aim, 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 <laughs> aim, 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 fire.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Neither
1: is it ready, fire, aim, but you have to pull the trigger. So, this principle of action bias, which is make a start, make an imperfect start, and then course correct. When I was learning to fly a plane, long story for why that.
0: Hey, took Antonio, planes. wait. You've got to be one of the most interesting men. Well,
1: <laughs> I told about that.
0: Us so my flying.
1: <laughs> so I was very fortunate again more by luck than judgment. So I had an uncle who was tremendously wealthy and he had an airplane. And at that time we had a holiday villa in Mallorca in Spain on a Spanish island and at the time we were living in the UK and he would on a Friday just kind of get in the plane And everybody would sort of jump on the plane and hop over to Mallorca for the weekend and then kind of fly back. And I was chatting to him one day and he said, hey, listen, I hardly ever use the plane. Why don't you get yourself a license? And whenever you want the plane, just give me a call and you can take the plane. So I thought, well, okay. (laughs) So so, I mean, why not? You know, it's horribly fortunate. (laughs) Well, indeed, it's an opportunity that shouldn't be overlooked. So I started to learn how to fly a plane. But here's the point. And again, I think I do talk about this issue in this book. Let's imagine you were going to fly from JFK to London Heathrow, for the sake of argument, you know, halfway around the globe. You know that when you take off from JFK, if you then set on a bearing of, I don't know, 187 and you're heading towards London, if you then just point the airplane to London, and in seven and a half hours later, just land, you're likely to be in Moscow. Planes are about 96, 97% of the time off course. And you constantly have to course correct because of the weather, because of traffic, because of what air traffic control tells you, right? You're constantly course correcting. And it's the same with leadership, a strategic plan. What a lot of businesses do, they say, hey, Here's our plan for the year. And I kid you not when I tell you this. So they'll create a plan for the year and they'll go, terrific. So everybody knows what we're going to do. Yeah. Okay, great. And then they'll kind of put the plan in the drawer and then that's it. It's like not really a living, working document They'll kind of pull it out in seven or eight months time when things are going terribly pear-shaped, right? And everything's you know hitting the fan or they just kind of go, oh, it's time to plan together for the year again. And then they'll start again. And that's then landing the plane in seven and a half hours in the middle of the ocean, right? So-
0: Not even taking off.
1: Or not even taking (laughs) off because you're waiting for everything to be absolutely perfect. So back to your point. Yes. Action bias is, look, create a plan that everybody can believe in, that you can rally people around and then just get going. Because the truth of the matter is that circumstances will change. The weather will change. The traffic will change. Someone else will give you a different command from air traffic control. And you're going to have to- change. Because if you think you have perfect vision today for the next three or four or five months or even a year or two, then you're crazy. So actually, one of the things that we talk about in our program is sometimes you have to look through a telescope. Sometimes you have to look through binoculars. Sometimes you have to look through glasses. And sometimes you have to look through a microscope. And what some leaders are very visionary and they're good at looking long term down the road. I was listening to an interview with Jeff Bezos. And Jeff Bezos says in Amazon, The next six months are already baked in. The next year is probably already baked in. He spends all of his time thinking three to five years out. That's all he does. So some leaders are very far looking and some leaders are very tactical today, 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 today. And the reality is you need a mix of those things. Now, action bias is the thing that allows you to make a start, course correct, change. You've got to be very, very good at change and all of that kind of stuff. So. question.
0: Yes, I love that in taking courageous imperfect action, right? Because part of what holds us back is fear. And we don't even recognize that. And that's why when you talk about self awareness, it is one of the most important things for leaders to do right on point. As a matter of fact, John Maxwell, one of the things that he says is that even more important than developing leadership skills is developing yourself.
1: How can you lead others if you can't lead yourself? Absolutely, Uh,
0: absolutely. All right. So Antonio, as a lifelong learner, what are you learning right now?
1: I am a lifelong learner. I encourage everybody to be. When I was quite young, I mentioned to you before we came on air that my father's Spanish. Actually, my mother was Greek. So, una mezcla, as they would say. So every Sunday, go around to my dad's and, you know, big Sunday lunch because, you know, it's Spanish. And he would ask, you know, all the kids and whoever was around, so maybe wives and partners. And he would ask this question of us all, and he would go around one by one. And he would say, where have you failed this week? And if we would say, well, I haven't failed anywhere this week, Dad. He would say, that's a week wasted, Right. right? Because, you know, some you win and some you learn, right? So it's what have you learned? And he was a big fan of an American Italian racing car driver, Mario Andretti. If you know who that is, you're as ancient as I am. But my dad would talk about this all the time. He would say, if you're not terrified going through the corners, you're not going fast enough, right? And he gave us all permission to fail. So what's the point? And how does that answer? What are you learning now? Well, I had another boss. And he would say this. And it echoed what my dad said, just in a slightly different pair of pants. But my boss would say to me, this is a different leader from the one earlier. Like, what's a dreadful leader look like? But he would say, what did you learn yesterday, Antonio? And the first time he positioned that to me, he said, unless you've amassed some great wealth in the last 24 hours, he would say, the only advantage you have today over yesterday is what you've learned. Because otherwise, you're just a day closer to dead, (laughs) which is what he would say, right? So the only advantage you have today over yesterday is what you've learned. So instilled in all of us directors and all of the senior team and all of the managers is this principle of continuous development and learning. Okay, so to answer your question, as a lifelong learner, which I am, and I encourage all of our clients to be the same. So the three things I'm working on right now, and I'm always working on three things. And in a year's time, if you Have me back, and you'll say, What are you learning now? Maybe two of these will have changed, and maybe one will still be the same. But the three things I'm learning right now, because of what I do for a living, the first thing I'm learning to be better at is helping people deal with adversity. The second thing I'm learning right now is how to be a better coach. So I'm learning how to coach, and I think I'll probably be learning that forever. And then the third one, I think. Is this whole principle of EQ, which is so really important. So that's self-awareness, social skill, impulse control, motivation, empathy, all of that kind of stuff. Because EQ is a much, much, much higher, more reliable predictor of leadership success than IQ and technical skills. So we do a lot in the book about EQ. If I'm going to coach and teach and help leaders EQ in our program, then I better know what I'm talking about. So those are the three things I Absolutely
0: I'm... right. Walking the talk, people want to know that they can trust you, that you care for them and that you can help them.
1: Although they have to figure that out for themselves. You can't tell them that because they won't believe Of it, but...
0: course. And it's interesting because this is something they don't say. They may not even consciously know, but that's what they want to know. I mean, it's the same thing that I want to know of my leader. Can I trust them? Will they help me? And do they care for me?
1: Yeah, that trust piece is so important. Do you remember I told you about the leader that said, what does dreadful look like? Right? <laughs> when we did that big employee engagement survey, he based his whole leadership philosophy around this principle of trust. And he said that we had lost the trust of our people, and they would lost their trust and faith in us. And he said, it's a little bit like Imagine, you know, if you cup your hands and you put water in your hands and you were given the task of trying to make sure that not one drop of water fell between your hands and through your fingers. What would you do? I mean, you'd concentrate really, really hard and focus on it. And then he said, if I asked you to move from this part of the room to that part of the room, you'd work very carefully with it. You'd really look after it. And he said, imagine that's the trust by which we hold them, they hold in us. And then he said, but then if you do this and open your hands what happens to the water or the trust it goes on the floor and he said now how difficult is it to get the water back from the floor into your hands and it's impossible right and so he said remember always as leaders the good that we do is written in sand and the bad that we do is written in marble and remember that if people don't trust us then we are failing in our job as a leader so think about the level of trust that people have in you on a daily basis
0: Wow. So Antonio, you are a master storyteller (laughs) and creator of imagery. Is that something Um, you worked on intentionally or is it something that comes natural to you?
1: Genuinely, intentionally worked on it. And I think for one of our models of leadership (laughs) is the kind of four rules of leadership. Not the, the only four rules, but four of the rules. There are many. They never believe what you tell them. They rarely believe what you show them. They'll often believe what somebody else tells them, but then they always believe what they tell themselves. So if we look at rule three, which is they'll often believe what somebody else tells them, what that really means is third-party story. And if we have a message that we would like to impart, we can either tell somebody, but then they're going to be a bit dubious about it. They never believe what you tell them. We can show them some figures, But then they're always a bit dubious that those will be the figures that you tell us. But then inspired by telling stories. So we talk a lot, again, in our program, we have lots of story days and we have people think about the stories that we're telling and... We inspire with stories and we work very hard to make our stories quite unique and different and allow people to engage. Basically, if you want somebody to be interested, you have to be interesting, right? And people love stories. So we talk a lot to our leaders about the kinds of stories that they tell. And storytelling for leaders is critical and it's a learned skill. And we look at who are the best storytellers around, you know, like Pixar and Disney, and there's lessons to be learned from all of those people. And... When you look at inspirational leaders like Alexander the Great and George Washington's Martin Luther King or JFK, they were tremendous storytellers and imagery. You know, they're really good at implanting images in people's minds. So, yeah, it's a critical leadership skill, I think.
0: All right. So we have a question from a former guest. Dr. Jill Kushner Bishop wants to know, with all the development of AI, where is the value of humans? And how are you making sure that that role continues for them?
1: So everybody's going bananas about AI at the moment, right? And um, for me, if AI gets to the point that it does become conscious and it does take over the world, you know, what can we do about it? We can all spend the next 20 years being chicken little, the sky's falling in, the sky's falling in, the sky's falling in, right? I recognize AI is big news. And I know for sure that if there are two leaders or two architects or two dentists or two salespeople or two florists or two insert any role and one uses AI and one doesn't, the one that's using AI well will outperform the one that isn't. So I recognize that entirely. Right. So AI is a tool just like any other tool. I remember I was once working for an organization. It was just when the internet was kind of taking off, right? And in a board meeting, we were bemoaning the fact that the internet was taking off and people were buying lots of our products on the internet. And then they were taking them over borders and selling them on the gray market. So they were buying them, for example, in Northern Ireland, taking them into Southern Ireland, you know, just couple of miles across the border and selling them much more cheaply than we were exporting to Southern Ireland, right? That kind of thing. And so we were in a board meeting and everybody was bemoaning this fact. And I said, hold on, everybody, time out just for a second. Because I'd listened to this for at least 10 minutes or so, right? How dreadful the internet was and how it was going to radically change how we did our business and da 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 and I went, hold on, time out, everybody. I said, hands up here, who thinks the internet is going away. And obviously, nobody puts their hands up. And I said, okay. Well, with that being said, then our job is to figure out how to best utilize that. You know, I remember a great interview. It was the New York Times or somebody with Henry Ford and Henry Ford of car maker fame. So yeah. imagine New York, before Henry Ford automated the production of automobiles, New York streets were filled with horses and buggies and carts and whips and people. Whose job it was to shovel the horse shit, right? And get all of that manure and all that stuff. That's right. And then the car came along. And then that whole thing changed. So you could have been a horse rearer, is that a word? I don't know. A stable. I don't know. And suddenly the car comes along, and you can either say, Oh, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible, or get with the program and figure out how you can make the best use of that technology. Well, that technology, whether it's cars, or whether it's mobile phones, or whether it was then fax machines, or then the internet, and then laptops, and then cell phones, and then AI, and then something else. That's not going to stop. That pace of change is only going to increase. So you can either put your fingers in your ear and go, la, 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 not listening, or you can go, okay, let's now figure out how to use this to increase our competitive advantage. Because your job as a leader is to future-proof yourself, your people, and your business, right? right. And so I believe that AI will be part of that future-proofing success for every leader. I don't care what industry you're in, what vertical market size, AI is here to stay, and it will increase in its veracity and application. So get with the program.
0: So well said. Um, (laughs) And it puts us at ease, so thank you. Okay. so as a listener of this podcast, what's a question that you would like a future leadership guest to respond to? Like, what are you curious about?
1: Okay, so a client of mine who is a pretty big leader of one of the largest manufacturing companies, we coach their whole leadership team, and he's the executive vice president. He and I have this kind of shtick going on between us about work-life balance with leaders and how... It's important to get your work-life balance right. And most leaders don't get that right, yeah? And we were saying that there aren't many leaders who on their deathbed wish they'd spent more time at the office, right? Correct. And how most leaders... They spend all their time at the office wishing they were at home, and then when they're at home with the family thinking about the office, right? And in the book, we talk about this work-life balance, and we talk about looking after yourself. And I think the title of the chapter, or certainly the paragraph piece that talks about it, is if you think you don't have time for your wellness, then Mm -hmm. eventually you're forced to find time for your illness. So my client, Steve, he and I have this shtick, which is called pick your suck, right? So pick your suck means, listen, nobody wants to find time for their wellness. But what's worse is if you don't figure this out, then your illness is going to be a more dreadful situation than this. So you've got to pick your suck because things are going to suck eventually. So pick your suck. Do you want to look after your wellness or do you want to have to one day look after your illness? So this principle of Not only just self-care, but it could be any, it could be prospecting. Is the business any good at prospecting? Not really. Well, if you don't figure prospecting out, then the business isn't going to grow fast enough. So pick your suck. What do you want? Do you want to get good at prospecting or do you want to have to deal with the fact that the business isn't growing as quickly as you like? So pick your suck. Now, we also talk about the principle of discipline equals freedom, right? So if you're disciplined in something, then you can get really good at it. So here's my question. Pick your suck. What are you avoiding and why?
0: Love that question. We'll certainly ask. And I want to just talk a little bit about work life balance. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I do have a mentor who believes that there's no such thing as work life balance. It's about finding harmony. And that could be a whole different podcast and we can go down the rabbit hole there, which it seems like you may be wanting to do. I'm not sure. I'm I'm, itching to respond to that. But
1: okay. Next time, next time you have me on.
0: No, but you can tap into it again. I'm curious now. Well,
1: here's the thing. <laughs> I'll often talk to a new client and I'll say, tell me about some of the training you've had, tell me about some of the programs that you've done, tell me about da right? What are you learning about? What are you improving? Why? And all of that kind of stuff. And invariably you would be amazed, especially when we're thinking about this principle of work life balance, right? Where people, leaders, very busy and responsible individuals, I accept that entirely but they will say, yeah, so I'm trying to sort this out. So I've been on a time management course, right? You will be staggered how many time management courses people have been on, at which point I have to take enormous umbrage with that principle. Because I'll say, oh, okay, time management course. Okay. Can we agree that you can't manage anything you can't control? Yes, I agree <laughs> that. Okay. So how many more seconds a day has your time management course given you because we all i think have the same 24 hours whether it's you or me or alexander the great right how many michelangelo pick the most successful person you can possibly think of in any walk of life whether it's a composer whether you say it's Haydn or any politician did they get more time in a day than you No. So there's no such thing as time management. If you can't control something, you can't manage it. You cannot magic more time. So get the principle of time management out of your head. What it is, is it's behavior management. You have to decide what you do with your time, right? So forget time management. Let's talk about behavior management, right? And it comes a little bit back to the Eisenhower's matrix of high importance, low urgency, high urgency, low importance, all of that stuff, right? Where are you spending your life? Most leaders spend their life in high importance, high urgency. And as a consequence of that, their time, work, life balance is down the toilet, they're burnt out, they're stressed and hassled. And who makes good decisions when you're filled with fear, uncertainty and doubt? Nobody, nothing good comes from that. So when they say, You know, time management, I go... How much time
0: did that cost you? Right,
1: What a load of BS, right? So work-life balance is really important. What they don't recognize... I'm running from fire to fire to fire to fire. I say, just take a look in the mirror for me, will you, for a second? That's where the arsonist is living, right? You're (laughs) causing all of this. It's an ego play. You're doing it because you want to feel very, very, very important. If you do your job properly, you organize, if you delegate properly, if you lead properly, if you develop people properly, if you develop processes and systems, if you do your job properly, then every day shouldn't feel like helter-skelter, helter-skelter. So helter-skelter, helter-skelter, all that says is you're not doing your job properly. And who's responsible for that? You are. So that's one of those difficult conversations we have with our clients.
0: Well said. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: If you pop along to www.mydailyleadership.com, if you like some of the things we've talked about, have a look on our website. There's lots of free tools. There's lots of business health checks. Take an assessment. You know what? Our leadership assessment, I genuinely think, and everybody else that sees it says so, it's, it's the best leadership assessment on the market. You know, benchmark yourself. You know that? blind spots and self-awareness and all of that kind of stuff. Listen, even if you don't employ us and engage us to help you, take the assessment. It's going to be uncomfortable. You'll need a bite of a reality sandwich. You might have to have a lie down in the darkened room and find yourself with a piece of toast for a few minutes, but learn where you need to improve. Have your people take an assessment and then just work through improving every day, every day, little slight edge, every day, every day. It compounds over time. Get on with it because you're not the perfect finished article. Nobody is. We're all on a journey.
0: Right. And we need to take that action that you talked about, which is wonderful. So Antonio, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank Thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners.
1: It's been a hoot.
0: In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.